0: Well, we're on uh, chapter 22 of uh, the book Systematic Theology. And uh, chapter 22, we had talked about uh, uh, God's creation of the earth, and we talked about God's creation of angels and Satan, and then how some angels became Satan and demons. And then we talked about what it means to be created in the image of God last week. Now we talk about what it means to be men and women created in the image of God. How did God make us? And that really has to do with how God made Adam and Eve from the beginning. <coughs> uh, creation and mar- manhood and womanhood and creation and marriage. And I'm going to focus on Adam and Eve at the beginning of the creation and marriage as the first part of uh, uh, God's creation there of us as human beings. I have already done this talk in this class two years ago, three years ago. Uh, but you probably can't remember it. So um, we're, going to, we're going to do it again. Um, um, here's this tentative schedule uh, man is male and female today. And then man is male and female. I think it's going to do, go two weeks, actually. Then April 1st, no class, no fooling. Uh, because the first Sunday of the month, we have kids' stuff in here. Then April 8th is Easter, and there are classes for anybody. So you have to remember that. And then April 15th, we come back, and we come back to what are we made of, body only or body, soul, and spirit. And then April 22nd, we'll have a guest teacher because it's my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. And so Margaret and I will be in Florida for them. They are 89 and 90, and they are looking forward to this. And all the children and all... All the grandchildren are going to be able to be there, which would be 21 or 22 of us. So, uh, so we're thankful for that. I think that's it. Then May, May looks clear. I think we'll just go, out, we'll go right on to more chapters in the book. Um, this topic about what it means to be male and female created in the image of God, this is a topic on which I have written quite a bit and, uh, and spoken quite a bit, So, the challenge is to kind of compress it today into a brief outline, but um, um, I have a book published in 2004 called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, An Analysis of More Than 100 Disputed Questions. It's 856 pages. It's kind of an encyclopedia about all the details of biblical interpretation in this controversy over men and women. And then... Countering the Claims of Evangelical Feminism is a condensed short version of that book. It's, um, oh yeah, Uh, that's 316 pages, and I brought some copies of that today. And then, um, actually, John Piper and I edited a book in 1991 by, by 21 authors, 27 topics, 27 chapters, called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And that, that's just kind of a standard book defining I, what I understand to be a biblical view of men and women in marriage and the church and, and other questions. And uh, I just saw last week it's still number 11 of the best-selling books in the Christian bookstores uh, on uh, men and women. And uh, this is after it's been out for 16 years. So it, 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 we're thankful it, it got Book of the Year Award from Christianity Today uh, in 1990. 192, and um, <clears throat> and then they changed the method by which Book of the Year was selected after that. Um, <laughs> it used to be readers vote, and now they didn't let the readers vote anymore after that year. Um, we're not sure exactly why. Then finally, does anybody, is anybody in our church connected with ministry in the Czech Republic? I just remembered I brought this. Okay. You, it's what? Native, okay, good <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Can you talk to me afterward? Just got a book translated into the check, showed up, and I need so okay, all right, uh, key issue number one, so now what we're going to do, um, I want to talk about the fact that as men and women, we're equal in value and dignity. I want to talk about that for a few minutes at the beginning, but then the bulk of the time i'm going to talk about the fact that we're different in the roles that God has given us in marriage. <clears throat> and um, and in a way, this is a controversial area. It's an area that's been made, that for generations, people just assumed, hey, there are different roles for husbands and wives in marriage. And and for thousands of years, I suppose, but at least hundreds of years, and, and century after century in the Christian world, People just assumed that there were differences and there was a leadership role for the husband in the marriage. And then within the last 50 years, we had the advent of feminism in the secular culture. And then, sure, as you could predict, I suppose, uh, as soon as there was feminism in the secular culture, a few years later, we began to get the influence of feminism in the church. Saying, hey, wait a minute, there are no roles for men and women that are different. just depends on your gifting and ability. And if the wife is a better leader than the husband, then let her take charge or just divide up tasks according to gifts and interests, but no, uh, no particular uh, leadership role for the husband. And so that was the controversy. And my view of controversy in the church is God always brings good out of it. He brings good in that he corrects some mistakes, corrects some oppression and some wrongful male dominance and... and uh, and I think that has happened, and I've been involved in this kind of controversy for, for the last, I suppose, 20, 25 years. Um, and I, I think that the controversy has been painful and difficult at times, but it's also caused us to rethink. what What does the Bible really say? And should we, in fact, be giving more recognition to our equality in the image of God than we have in the past? And I think that has been healthy, even though I'm going to differ in the end with the feminist claim that there are no unique leadership roles for men. So that's kind of an overview of where we're going. <clears throat> First off, key issue number one, men and women are equal in value and dignity. Um, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. The very first sentence in the Bible that says that God created us as male and female also says, the very first sentence in the Bible that says this, also says that we are both created in the image of God. And as I explained last week, to be in the image of God is the highest status of any creature in the universe. So you think of all the things that God made and right up at the top, the pinnacle of his creation, the greatest, most wonderful, most amazing thing that God made is you. Both men and women. And so right away the Bible affirms that we are both that we share this status. Male and female, he created them them in the image of God in this highest role in the universe. So I think that affirms what is later worked out elsewhere in the Bible, and that is that that we share this and we should honor one another and value one another as being equal in value and dignity. We see other places in the Bible where this is affirmed. For instance... um, The honor given to the uh, uh, godly wife in Proverbs 31 is a praise to her, countering a lot of the negative or demeaning views of women that would have been held in ancient cultures. But Proverbs 31 just holds up women as being honored. And other examples of women like Esther and Sarah and Ruth uh, and Deborah and others in the Old Testament held up as models of, faith and faithfulness to God and courage and obedience so that um, the Bible has, even from the Old Testament, a different view of women than would be held in the surrounding cultures. And then you get into the New Testament we find out that in Acts 2, well we find out in Jesus' ministry that men and women both were listening to Jesus. He was interacting responsibly with them, treating them with great honor and dignity as he interacts with Mary and Martha, as he interacts with the woman at the well engaging them in theological discussion, understanding that they themselves are responsible before God and can make choices and decisions to be faithful to God and follow him. Many women were supporting Jesus out of their own means as uh, as they listened to him. And then we find in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit is poured out in new fullness on Men and women, because Peter says it's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my men servants and maid servants in those days will I pour out my spirit, says the Lord. So both men and women are are uh, are gifted with spiritual gifts, um, and I think more women than men actually held up their hands a few minutes ago about contributing in some way in the leadership roles here in the class. Um, there are spiritual gifts that people have, that they contribute in many ways uh, to ministering to one another, and so uh, Acts 2 emphasizes that. 1 Corinthians 12, as each has received a gift, employ it for one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That means, 1 Corinthians twelve seven and 11, that means women as well as men. God has given all of us gifts that he expects us to use for one another. Margaret and I have been the recipients of those ministry gifts this week and the previous week, as many of you have brought by meals, come by and visited, sat and read the Bible with Margaret, uh, prayed for her, called to see how she's doing, many other things like that, just using uh, gifts that God has given you. And uh, actually there's been more women than men ministering to us in that way, but, but many people have gifts to, and both men and women have gifts to minister. First Peter uh, also talks about each of us. First Peter 4, receiving a gift, in, uh, and uh, um, we're to use it for one another. Galatians 3:28. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And saying, "Let's get over this. Hey, superior, inferior, better, worse, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female." There's a unity in Christ Jesus that you experience in the church. So we are to view one another as brothers and sisters. And you know, in a family that works well, maybe some of you grew up in families where brothers and sisters got along well and honored each other and the family worked. It was a a good family. That's the picture. That's the model. That's the example of how the church is supposed to work. We think of each other as brothers and sisters in the church. And we care for one another, and we love one another, and we appreciate one another, and we use gifts for one another, ministering to each other. So we're equal in value as, uh, as, um, as being equal in the image of God. That means that starting on page one, the Bible corrects the oppressive male dominance or male chauvinism that affects perhaps all cultures and all societies apart from Christ throughout history. And uh, I, was, I was just uh, deeply saddened going through an airport one day, and I saw on the USA Today, the front page, this picture, No Girls Allowed, Abortion for Sex Selection Raises Moral Questions. And here's a picture of a, of a doctor giving an ultrasound to a woman in Meerut, India, And uh, she says, and and the doctor says, uh, for $35, you can get an ultrasound. And if the woman finds out that she's pregnant with a girl, unfortunately, 99% of the cases in this clinic, she'll have the child aborted because of cultural and social pressures that they want to have a boy rather than a girl. And um, so the USA Today article says, Asians' desire for boys leaves deadly choice. Technology, population, add pressure, India's uh, ethical uh, dilemma. And it says, in India, China, and much of Asia, modern technology, the the cultural desire for boys, and pressure to reduce population have joined forces in a deadly combination. And so then the article quotes uh, Professor Amartya Sen, who was... Then a professor at Harvard, he later uh, is so well-known as, as an economist that he has won a Nobel Prize, and uh, he, he went and became a professor in Cambridge, England. Um, but Amartya Sen says in this article, because of abortion for sex selection, uh, female infanticide that is putting little girls to death, the abandonment of baby girls, the preferential feeding and health care of boys, have contributed to an imbalanced ratio of boys and girls in a number of uh, in a number of countries. And as a result, Professor Sen estimates there are now more than 100 million women quote missing in the population of the world. And that's. That's a tragedy of unimaginable proportions. Well, there's a difficulty coming because there are many boys who aren't going to have wives to marry, and that's going to lead to frustration and violence and, and much more, many more troubles. But much worse than that is the putting to death of a hundred million little baby girls. And then, in addition to that, Just think if you were a woman growing up in that kind of culture and you survived. The message you would be getting from an early age is, I wish you were a boy. Boys are better than girls. And the damage to the sense of self-esteem and self-worth and value, the damage that that does to girls and women growing up in that society is incalculable. The Bible, on page one, says that's wrong. In the first chapter of the Bible, it says we're both created in the image of God, and the implication of that is that we're equally valuable to God, and we desi- we, it is right that we honor one another and treasure and value one another in the image of God. So, so that's where we begin on the outline we begin with an acknowledgment that we must continually keep in mind that we should honor one another as, as uh, equal in the image of God. And wherever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as selfish dictators, wherever women are forbidden to vote or own property or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is abuse or violence against women or rape, or female infanticide, or polygamy, or harems. In those and many other situations, the biblical truth of equality in the image of God is being denied. And we must say the Bible says that is wrong. So that's that's number one. Um, In distinction from that, a number of years ago, 1999, Campus Crusade put out a policy statement that was actually approved by Bill and Vonette Bright before it says, well, Bill Bright was still alive. And um, um, Margaret and I had a little input into this statement. Um, somebody arranged for, our, for Margaret and me to have breakfast with Bill and Vonette Bright, and they were considering what you know what to do about a statement in this in this uh, area. And they liked what the Southern Baptist Convention had done. Saying we are equal but different in God's sight, but they wanted to modify it, and Vanette particularly wanted to guard against uh, men being oppressive to their wives or not caring for their wives, and so um, and so they 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 kind of essentially adore endorsed the statement of the Southern Baptist Convention, but added this very helpful paragraph, and I think it just gives a, a, a very a very sound perspective after talking about we're equal in God's sight, but there is a leadership role that belongs to husbands in the marriage, then it says, in a marriage lived according to these truths, the truths they've just talked about, the love between husband and wife will show itself in listening to each other's viewpoints, valuing each other's gifts and wisdom and desires, honoring one another in public and private, and always seeking to bring benefit, not harm, to one another. I thought that was very helpful. It has a lot of good one-anothers in there. And um, Mark and I had a landscaper over tearing out a bunch of plants in the backyard and planting others yesterday. And we had a chance to practice some of these listening to one another <laughs> <laughs> examples. Uh, and after I'd carried that little palm tree around about six different places, we finally... Figured out where it went. So, but it was fun, wasn't it? In the end, and we're both happy, but we had to listen to one another and value each other. And, and and I just had to, sometimes Margaret has to say things the second or the third time before I really hear it. I don't know if that makes any sense. There was this love and respect conference here at the at the church. Margaret and I did not. Go to it. Uh, many of you did appreciate it very much. We've started reading through the book that's connected with it. And it looks very, very good to me. It looks very helpful. Again, talking about there's a healthy way to respect and honor one another, and to uh, and to value each other. So I I just I just want to say, hey, this is a, there's a healthiness. There's a there's a positive uh, joy to this, delighting in our equal value in the image of God. But saying, you know, but we're different, and we can enjoy that as well. So having said that, key issue number one, we're equal in the image of God, in value and honor before God, in value and honor to the, and, 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 and uh, contribution to the church, to the family, to the home, etc. Then I'm going to talk about differences. And key issue number two is that men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the created order as part of the created order. I'm going to say it's not sin that makes us different in roles. It is the way God made us from the beginning. So I wanted to say there are ten reasons here that I think point to the fact that God made us from the beginning to be different uh, in the roles we have in marriage and how we relate to one another in marriage. But before I say that, I need to say a word about being single. Um, I'm going to be talking a lot about marriage in the rest of this hour and probably the next class period. Why am I focusing so much on marriage when I'm talking about men and women? Well, because a whole lot of the material in the Bible on how men and women relate to each other deals with marriage. And so when I'm talking about Genesis 1 and 2, I'm talking about marriage because Adam and Eve were husband and wife. And frankly the controversy about men and women has a lot to do with the relationship between husband and wife. And then, just to say to those of you who are younger here and who are single, I wish, frankly, that I had known these things before Margaret and I got married. I think uh, 37 years ago it would have been helpful to have more of a sense of broad outline. We got married out of a background, though, where people just assumed that people understood what husbands and wives were to do in marriage. But, you know, we were we got married in the late 60s, and... There's a lot of turmoil, a lot of challenge. So then, we're going to talk about marriage, but what is the application to single men and women? First thing I want to say, I want to say this clearly because there's a chance of misunderstanding. Nowhere, nowhere does the Bible say that all women are to be subject to all men. The Bible doesn't say that. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, not to other people's husbands. I think wives here could say being subject to your own husbands is enough of a challenge. (laughs) The biblical picture for how men and women are to relate to each other outside of the marriage relationship, the dominant biblical picture is brothers and sisters. There's an equality there. That's that's how we're to relate to... That's how I am to relate to every other woman in this class to whom I'm not married. Everybody except Margaret. I'm to relate to you as brother-sister. And so for the rest of us. So there's no authority that's inherent in being a man that applies outside of marriage in general. Having said that, however, I think there are faint echoes... There are faint echoes of the differences that work themselves out in varying ways in different circumstances. And previous cultures and previous societies had kind of traditions of how men would act to honor women and to act with chivalry and dignity and nobility toward women. And women would be honored and valued but would kind of often uh, expect there to be a leadership role on the part of men in ordinary situations. There are faint echoes and yet it's a little bit hard when all that's been challenged to work out exactly how those faint echoes would apply in specific details. I think we're going through just trying to redefine those things in our culture and society today. But I would want to say for single men and women and for everybody relating to everybody else to whom you're not married, it's, it's okay to let yourselves be different and to just enjoy the difference. And to women, be thankful that you are a woman. Men, be thankful that you are a man. And remember then, with regard to singleness, Jesus was single, and Paul was single, and many have done great work for the kingdom of God who have been single. And I think of John Stott, who is in his 80s now, this Bible teacher in England, and he's just... I don't know if he's been in 100 countries or more teaching the Bible, and his singleness has just given him freedom to travel and do those kinds of things. A number of you who are single understand that there is a particular kind of freedom that gives you ability to minister in ways that otherwise maybe would not be true. Then I have to say to everybody here who's married, remember that you have been single too. And if the Lord doesn't return while we're still alive, or about half of us, our spouse, I suppose, will die first and we'll someday be single again. And in heaven, there's no marrying or giving in marriage. So being married is not necessary for heavenly happiness because in heaven there will be yet more wonderful relationships than we have here. So just those words of just some notes about what it means to be single. And having said that, you can ask me in a few minutes what are those faint echoes that, that uh, are seen, but I, I, I'm not sure. I, maybe we can think of some. But uh, now, let's go on and see if there aren't, in the creation narrative, some reasons showing that God gave Adam, God gave Adam an, a leadership role with respect to Eve uh, before there was sin in the world. Number one, <clears throat> the order. Adam was created first, then Eve. God created Adam, put him in the garden, gave him commands for caring for the garden, brought the animals to him to see if there would be help or fit for him, then caused a deep sleep to come on him, and then created Eve from his, or the rib from his side, and then brought Eve to him. So Adam was created first, then Eve. And in the ancient world, people would have thought of that as indicating a leadership role for Adam. God created him and told him what to do, and then gave Eve to be a helper for him. That's one indication of leadership role. Number two, the representation. Adam, not Eve, had a special role in representing the human race. And we don't, we don't see that until we find it represented in the New Testament teaching about it, but the New Testament teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in Romans 5 says that Adam was had a, a representative leadership role with regard to the race. So. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ <clears throat> shall all be made alive. You think back to this story about eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember who first took the fruit? It was Eve, wasn't it? And then she gave some to her husband. So you'd think now, when, when Paul is thinking about how do we how do we inherit a sinful nature... Where, where do we inherit this sinful nature from? How do we inherit this tendency to sin? Or where do we get the, the, uh, actually the guilt for sin that's imputed to us because of Adam's sin? You might think, well, Eve sinned first. I suppose we got it from Eve. <clears throat> but in fact, the Bible doesn't say that. It says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It doesn't say as in Eve all die. So there's a parallel between Adam and Christ. When Eve sinned, she sinned for herself. When Adam sinned, he represented all the rest of us. And the result was that God thought of us all then as being guilty sinners, and then a a sinful nature was passed on to us. So there was a representative leadership role for the race that Adam had. Number three, the naming of woman. Adam named Eve. The man said, "This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." The Hebrew verb is kara to call. And uh, I know I've read the objection that some people say, um, "Oh, it wasn't really naming her until you get the personal pronoun uh, personal name uh, Eve uh, in later chapter." But um, but actually. This is consistent with the naming pattern that is seen throughout Genesis 1 and 2. God God named things. He called the darkness night, and he called the light day. It's Hebrew verb kara. He brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. That's the Hebrew verb kara. There's a naming pattern going on here. And the person giving the name has authority or leadership over the person receiving the name. We see that in the Old Testament when parents give names to their children or when God changes the name of Abram to Abraham or other things like that. And so I think the ability of Adam to give a name to a woman, as he did to the animals that God brought to him, it's, it's defining or explaining the task that she's given, and it assumes that there's a leadership role on Adam's part. Number four, the naming of the human race. I mentioned this last week. When God named the human race, he didn't name it the Hebrew equivalent to woman, Isha, or to humanity or something like that. It was specifically male, um, a a word with male overtones. He named the the human race man, the Hebrew equivalent of the word man. Uh, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, Genesis 5, 1 and 2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, Adam when they were created. And uh, so he didn't say, okay, now I'm going to name the human race woman. No, he said, I'm going to name the human race man. And uh, that seems to me to hint or whisper at a leadership role for a man. And then number five, the primary accountability. After there was sin in the world, after there was sin, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, even though Eve had eaten first, God came and spoke to Adam first. And so... Uh, Genesis 3 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man, singular, and said to him, singular, Where are you? And in Hebrew, the word you is singular. So God calls Adam to account first. Now, when our kids were young, if they were all three playing in a room and I came into the room and the room was just trashed, it was just chaos in the room, the first thing I would say would be, Elliot, what happened? Why would I do that? A's the oldest. They all had some responsibility, but he's the oldest and he had most responsibility. So in the same way, God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, what happened? He calls him first to account. I think that assumes that there was a greater responsibility, a leadership role on Adam's part. Incidentally, by way of application, to today. If something's going wrong in your family, husbands, it's your responsibility to take the leadership role and start to do something to make it right. If the family isn't going to church regularly, then just, hey, wait till my wife decides to do something about it. You take the leadership role. There's there's a greater responsibility there, I think. Okay. Both have responsibility to do right before God, but there's there's a hint of leadership here. Number six, the purpose. Eve was created as a helper for Adam, not Adam as a helper for Eve. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The Hebrew word is "azer," helper, Genesis 2.18. It seems to me that that's suggesting that Eve's task is to help Adam in the task that God had given to him, and that implies a leadership role. However, I have to say here, that this word, "azer" helper, is a word that indicates a role of great value and honor and dignity, because you know who is most often called helper in the Bible? Well, Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the Old Testament, God himself is called the helper. So, Um, I will not be afraid of man, let's see, the Lord is my helper, what can man do to me? Or I lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord often, often, often the Bible takes a, a role of helper to us, still in the responsibilities that we have and for which we have primary responsibility and accountability before him, but he helps, and so the role of helper is a role of great dignity. And, and, and God himself gives us, gives us the example of that, but it does, I think, still suggest that there's a leadership role for Adam. Number seven, the conflict. The curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. And here, I'm disagreeing with probably the primary foundational claim of evangelical feminists. They say, hey, this leadership role for husbands, this is all a result of sin. This came in as a result of the fall. It wasn't that way in the Garden of Eden. And my response is that sin messed up these roles. It distorted them. But the leadership role was there from the beginning. And I get that here from Genesis 3:16. To the woman, God said, "This is after, <clears throat> after Adam and Eve had sinned, this is after there was a fall." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, see, some people say, oh, haha, here it is. That's the curse. That's punishment. And there's where we get this husband leadership role. He shall rule over you. Um, and I'm going to say, I don't think that's the right interpretation. I think... I'm going to say in a minute, I think that rule here, mashal, means harsh, forceful, probably abusive leadership. But why I get that has to do with the meaning of the Hebrew words behind desire and rule. So let me just look at that in a little more detail. Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for, and the marginal translation against your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, here the question is, what kind of desire? What does this word desire mean? It's a Hebrew word that's a rare word. It's Teshuka, and then the preposition following it is el. How do you find out the meaning of a word in Hebrew? Well, you look at other examples. However, there aren't very many other examples of teshukah. In the Old Testament, there are only two other examples. One's in um, Song of Solomon. But, and that's got a different preposition. It's a different con- construction. But the other one is right here in the next chapter. And in this next instance, we can find out what the word means because it's clear in the context. God is speaking to Cain. And God hadn't accepted Cain's sacrifice. And Cain is mad. And God says to him, Cain, you know, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, or you could translate it against you, but you must rule over it. Whether you translate it for or against, I think the meaning is here. Desire means desire to conquer or desire to overcome. It's a hostile, aggressive desire. Because God is saying to Cain, you know, it's, it's just like sin is waiting outside the door like a, like, a, a, an, like a lion. It's waiting to pounce on you when you walk out, and you've got to rule it. You've got to conquer it. Sin is waiting to conquer you, but you've got to conquer it. So I think its desire here is to rule over or defeat. It's a hostile, aggressive desire, and, um, and it's exactly the same phrase, Teshuka plus el. In fact, if you look in Hebrew, there are six words that are used in the same sequence In this sentence in Genesis 3.16, and in this sentence in Genesis 4.7, desire uh, against uh, and and rule. Um, There are six of them, actually. I won't go through them now. But I think that God put this second sentence here so we could understand the meaning of the first one. And the first one, I think, then means, Eve, you're going to have a hostile desire to to rebel against your husband or rule over him and... Uh, he shall rule over you. And in fact, uh, this this meaning was actually first proposed by um, a friend of mine named Susan Foe in an article in the Westminster Theological Journal about 1974. And since she proposed this, I see it being adopted more and more in different Bible translations. And our Bible translation committee for the English Standard Version, all three of our Old Testament members thought, yeah, that's probably the right meaning. But we, they were hesitant to introduce it into the text. We put it in the footnote instead, desire against, which makes it very clear. Desire for means it allows a little more flexibility. But I'm I'm seeing other translations and other uh, interpretations adopt this. And in fact, on the other side, in the academic world, the evangelical feminist side, they put out a major book a couple years ago called Discovering Biblical Equality. And their Old Testament essay by Richard Hess, Denver Seminary, says... This is the right interpretation. Desire here is a hostile desire. It's a desire against. It's a desire to battle against and conquer. So here's what is happening. God says in the in when Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, he brings punishment. He brings punishment to Adam's particular area of responsibility that is raising food from the ground because he says to Adam Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the dust. So it's going to be hard to raise food from the ground. You're going to get thorns and thistles. Pain to Adam's area. Then he says to Eve, in pain you're going to bring forth children. So there's pain to Eve's particular area of responsibility in childbirth. And then God introduces pain into their relationship. So he says so see before before the fall Adam and Eve existed in joyful harmony but with a leadership role for Adam in the garden and then God says I'm going to bring conflict and pain into that Eve your desire will be to triumph over your husband and to rule but he's going to rule over you and that word for rule Hebrew word mashal That's that's always used of rule by greater power or force or strength in the Old Testament, sometimes of God ruling over the universe, but sometimes of the Philistines ruling over Israel, for instance. So there's conflict brought into There's pain brought into the relationship as a result of the fall. That isn't the first time there's leadership. It's just saying that leadership is going to be filled with conflict. Have you noticed that? Okay, no, no, I'm not going to go there. All right. <laughs> if that is the right interpretation, I think it is, then there's a restoration. Salvation in Christ reaffirms the creation order. See, if this is what happened at the fall, then I think what we'd expect is when there's a, a restoration in Christ, it would be undone. And In fact, that's what we see. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands. No more of this trying to take over the leadership of the, of the family and rebel against your husband and oppose him. Wives, be subject to your husbands or submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then Colossians three nineteen, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. No more of this rule by greater strength or force. And so that is undoing the effects of the fall. Salvation in Christ reaffirms the beautiful creation order. Number nine, the mystery... Marriage from the beginning of creation was a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Here's a point that I don't think the evangelical feminists have ever been able to answer. Paul says in Ephesians 5:31, <clears throat> "Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is a prof- is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here's what Adam is doing, I mean, what Paul is doing. He's writing in the book of Ephesians, in the New Testament. And he looks all the way back in the Old Testament for something to say about marriage in Ephesians 5. And he quotes Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now the point is, that's before there is sin. Sin doesn't come till Genesis 3. So he's quoting what marriage was from the beginning. And what he's saying is that Adam and Eve from the beginning, they were a mystery. That is something that God had hidden, and he didn't really explain very much at the beginning, but Paul now is explaining that Adam and Eve were set up to be a picture of Christ in the church. Adam and Eve, when they were created, were to be a picture of Christ in the church. That means that God created marriage from the beginning, in its nature, in its essence, to be a picture of Christ in the church. That means that all marriages throughout all history, throughout all culture, throughout all time, should be a picture of Christ in the church. And that's why Paul can say, wives, be subject to your husbands, as the church is subject to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's a parallel there in Ephesians 5. Paul is seeing into the mystery and saying that Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, they didn't know it but they were a picture of Christ in the church. If that's true, there is a leadership role that belongs to the man because he's parallel to Christ. See, Christ loves the church, but he has authority over the church. He's the leader. That's not culturally variable. That's not dependent on different societies and cultures and educational backgrounds and gifts. That's just, that's just the way marriage is. That's the way God created men and women to relate. Is that making sense? It's a beautiful picture, and it's what it should be in marriage. Number 10, the parallel with the Trinity. The equality, differences, and unity between men and women reflect the equality, differences, and unity in the Trinity. I'm going to get into this in more detail next week. But just to say that in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so um, Paul is saying that in the Trinity... Father and son have an authority relationship where the father is the leader and the son obeys the father. They are equally God. They are equally powerful, they are equally gifted, they are equally able. They have all, they share all the attributes of God, but the father has a leadership role. The father creates through the son. The Father predestines us to be saved in the Son. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son comes to obey. And for all eternity, the Son sits at the right hand of the Father. So they're equal, but there's difference. There's a leadership role for the Father. And so, again, I think that that parallel shows that in the creation itself, there was a leadership role. Now, hmm, I am about out of time, and I am... Now now I'm at, but how does it work in practice? Uh, <laughs> that takes forever. <laughs> Let me start, because I'm resolving in my mind, I've got to stop a little bit earlier and give you a chance to interact so that it really seems like there's more uh, interaction in the class. So let's do this for just a few minutes here. Just if you want to pick up on this, and then I'll come back, and I think we can finish up the outline next week. Do you want to ask about that or comment on that at all? Laverne. Do you think there was more than one Adam and one Eve? And also, Paul being single, wasn't he a member of the Sanhedrin and didn't they have to be married? Uh, No, I don't think there was more than one Adam and one Eve, just one. And I think it's essential that the whole human race descend from Adam because then we are all represented by Adam, and then there's a unity of the race, and we can be represented by Christ in redemption for all those who are redeemed. Um, People have argued, hey, uh, Jewish rabbis or Jewish teachers had to be married, and therefore Paul had to be married. Um, And people have given different answers. Maybe Paul was married and then widowed. Or maybe that he, maybe that the rule was later and it wasn't, a, or maybe that it wasn't a complete rule but just a general practice. And the the conclusion is that I don't think there's enough evidence to know. But Paul says, um, but there are indications that Paul is single. I wish that everybody were as I am, but each has his. In First Corinthians seven, so he was single. So, okay. And don't know whether he was ever married or not. I, I suspect not. But but. No, I better not even say that. I take that back. Oh, there, it's on the tape. But uh, <laughs> no, I, as I say it, I'm hesitant because we just don't know about Paul anything about Paul's life before uh, anything about whether he was married or not before he was saved. So, yeah, um, do we have something over here? Yeah, Wayne. I think it's kind of interesting analogy where Adam did not use his headship in the beginning and say no to the fruit. We have today a lot of fifty percent divorces and men not leading their families, mm. causing severe problems. <clears throat> yep. Thanks, Wayne. I'm just going to say thanks. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to say P.S. Uh, there's all there's ninety nine point nine percent of the cases there's fault on both sides, um, but uh, but Adam but God called Adam to account first. So if things aren't right, whose responsibility is it to take the initiative to be sure that you're making steps toward getting it right? I understand that. Okay, over here, anything? Um, Anything else? How are we doing here? Uh, Got anything? Okay, One, one more over here, yeah. Okay. What's, I don't know your name. Patrick? Patrick McCarthy. don't want the name for you. I'm just half hour. Okay, I don't know if anybody has an answer for this, but there's only one Adam and Eve, and how do we account for all the different races and skin oh. colors and ethnicities, yeah. other than that God likes variety? Yeah, good. Um, I think, uh, Patrick, that that comes from <clears throat> um, just differences that came out of the richness of the genetic pool that Adam and Eve gave, uh, the the genetic diversity that were in Adam and Eve to begin with. So I think that means probably that Adam and Eve had children of different colored skin, for instance, um, because otherwise we wouldn't get the varieties of races that we get. And in fact, there was an article in Scientific American a few years ago showing the number of different kinds of people that would have had to, the number of, People that would have had to migrate to Asia, to Africa, or stay in Africa, or migrate, or to Europe, and then from Asia over into North and South America to get the different racial groups we have today. And there isn't, there aren't very many in the 20s or 30s of 20 or 30 different kind, different unrelated females to get the genetic diversity. But the, but the thought is that uh, people who either looked alike or mostly looked alike, migrated to one area and there was a selective isolation of certain parts of the gene pool and then they they, um, they, they stayed and, and had children and that's where we get it. But all different races are descended from Adam and Eve, which means that we should respect and honor one another as equal in the image of God, because even though there are racial differences. We're all children from Adam and Eve and actually from Noah and Mrs. Noah and their children and wives. So, Okay yeah they dispersed after genesis eleven okay well let's um let's see i'm at, i'm I'm a minute over, but I see one more question. We'll take one more over here and then uh, and then we'll have to quit. And I've forgotten your name. I have heard your brain described as vast and no, profound. let's not do that. That just makes me uncomfortable. it's not helpful. and i also I, I consider this class just brain food, and so thank you for taking the time yeah. to teach and prepare. to be so clear. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I've said before, I just, I just think of it as we should all do something to contribute to the church. And so anyway, the Lord lets me do this and I'm thankful for the opportunity and for your support. I'm going to pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Uh, How good you are. Lord, you just made us to be wonderful uh, in in different ways. And, Lord, I thank you for my wonderful wife, Margaret, and how unbelievably gifted and interesting and yet different you have made her to be from me. And what joy that brings. Thank you for all the women and men in this class, Lord, for making us to be just different, equal but different. And... um, Lord, would you give us a special joy in our manhood and our womanhood this week as we think of ourselves and as we relate to one another. Don't let us make the mistake of the world to think we're all the same. Don't make us, let us make the mistake of the world to think that we're better or worse. But just let us be thankful that you made us different and unique and wonderful in your sight. And help us to honor you by our thankfulness for that this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.